Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 134. Uh, I'm trying to think before we jump into the episode if there are any announcements. Uh, none that I can think of specifically. I was recently interviewed for a website, th- the name of which I did not write down. Um, I feel bad about that. Sorry. Um, I'll go ahead and link to it uh, in the in the uh, post of uh, this episode so you can read it there. Um, although <laughs> I was about to say, like, oh, I'm just saying stuff you guys already know. No, go and read this thing just so the guy gets hits and so he he won't feel bad about, uh, you know, interviewing me. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, uh, about it as far as, uh, as far as announcements. So I will go ahead and bring in, uh, my co-host, uh, Robert Hornack. Robert. Hi, Tyler. How you doing? Oh, I'm sorry. I am doing well. How are you? Why did you just apologize? Because I, I realized as I was answering you, I could see it in your eyes. You had more to say. Nope. Oh, I'm no. doing fine. You got to learn how to read these eyes. Mm. By the way, uh, Tyler and I are only about six inches apart right now. Yeah, it's really... It's tight. It's pretty erotic. Um, <laughs> so maybe I read the room differently than you did. <laughs> I, so, uh, so I will say this. Um, we are recording in a different place than usual. Uh, we usually record at my house, but today we are recording at Robert's. And Robert and I spent a lot of time just gabbing uh, before we started recording. So uh, now traffic is an issue. 405. I have to travel up the 405 at exactly the wrong time. So we're going to try and keep this episode somewhat short. However. But I'm not going to force it. If it winds up going two hours, so be it. I will sit in traffic for a very long time. Uh, if need be. So, um, I like the fact that the 134 or 134 is conceivably putting you in a backed up 405. Episode 134. Oh, that's interesting. I'm just saying. Sorry, I thought you were talking about the 134, which is, uh, you know, takes you from like Glendale into, or I guess Pasadena into, uh, Burbank, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love the 134, by the way. I like I've, the I've never experienced traffic on that. It's underappreciated. It is underappreciated. It's like the 90. You ever get on the 90? I've never like gotten no on the Like no traffic on the 90. Oh, boy. But it's short. It's very short. It takes you into the marina from the 405. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I never have to go there. Yeah. Um, that This was such a uh, Los Angeles exchange. I love Sorry. it so much. Um it's, it wasn't there a, a sketch on SNL called The Californians? And Several. it was basically like a soap opera where they just kept getting bogged down by... You yeah. know, like talking about the roads, yeah. the... Yeah. It's, all that. It's weird. I don't know why, because I've lived other places, and it's always just get on 134, get on 405 or something like that. But here, it's the... Well, what's strange is... Do you know why uh, that is? You seem I, like a historian. No, 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 not at all. Okay. I, I'm a, story, a historian of my own life, and right. sometimes when I'm in Houston, which is where my uncle and aunt live, um, it's still Interstate 10. Oh, yeah. And so I'll refer to the 10. They'll go, mm. the 10? What do you, the 10? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, in LA we call it the 10. Yeah. Here it's I-10. Yeah, I-10. Or there yeah, it's yeah. I-10, which is strange to me. It's the same, it's the same road, mm-hmm. but it's given different names by different people depending on where on that road you are. There's something, I don't know, metaphysical about that. That's only interesting to me, clearly. I'm reading your eyes again. It's, it's just me. I'm, I'm trying to think of, I, I'm really trying to think of 
why it is, why the change happened. Because again, I've lived in multiple cities, including big cities like Chicago, and it has never been the, it's why the it random only article? been here. What hmm. was that? I don't well, know. It's very strange. Yeah, I don't But get once it. you learn it, then you do it, and then you can't get rid of it once you go back home. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's, but that's okay because, you know, when we go back home from uh, Los Angeles, you know, we're giving them a little bit of class. There you, you go. Know? Yeah. He's like, let me explain how we in Hollywood <laughs> talk about streets. Correctly. All right. First off, take fountain. Uh, Always that, take that fountain. Old, that old bit of uh, advice that, by the way, is correct. It's so true. When you're in Hollywood, take fountain. If you're in the Valley, I'd say take Oxnard. Hmm. Nobody knows about Oxnard. Oxnard. Yeah. But isn't a major exit off of the one, whatever it is? There is a 170, yeah. Uh, it's a 170, but there's an Oxnard exit. There is. I can't imagine that an, a road off of an exit could be should be the one that you take. And yet it is, wow. because below it is Burbank. Okay. Above it is Victory. Oh, yeah. And those are always pretty busy. And yes. then below Burbank is Magnolia, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Oxnard. Bizarre. Oxnard and Van Owen, both of those are, are good streets for the valley. Sorry, we can move on. <laughs> um, yeah, not doing great as far as uh, keeping that time down. So, although, honestly, I think I'm probably just um, stalling because <clears throat> I've been wanting to talk about this movie for a while, but I've been scared to do so because I think it is remarkably dense and... It is a thing that no matter how much I talk about it in one way, invariably I'm neglecting to talk about it another way uh, in talking to various people about today's movie, which is Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Uh, everybody seems to have a different read on it. Everybody seems to appreciate it for different reasons. Um, I will say that my reason for liking it um, and responding to it is... I've not heard people talk about it in that way, not to imply that like I see something that other people don't, they see it. Absolutely. But for me, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say what it is. But for me, the relationship between the two characters, Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quell, that relationship is so fascinating to me. Uh, and it is so well executed from a writing and acting standpoint that, um, that I, and I and I so rarely see relationships like that that I it just stuck with me so much and the dynamic of the relationship stuck with me and that's what made it my favorite movie of, tw- well, of twenty twelve. Wouldn't you say though that that itself the the relationship between Freddie and Lancaster can be interpreted in so many ways that oh sure absolutely um, yeah and I and I my my way of interpreting might be a bit more literalist. Uh, than most people. Uh, I think because I tend to be more focused on character um, and to a lesser extent story, but like character and dialogue and acting. And so from that standpoint, uh, I'm, I think it's a, a marvelous film and that's why I responded to it as well as I did. But that's only one part of it. And it's a part that, that, will always get get folded into other people's interpretations of the film. But for me, while I have no doubt that the film is doing a number of other things, the thing that gets me the most uh, is that relationship between these two characters. And so I realize that we've just kind of jumped into it. I didn't mean to do that. Um, We're keeping it short. What was that? We're keeping it short. I guess so. Uh, For those that, uh, that haven't seen the film, I would suggest watching it. 
first, uh, every once in a while, you'll run across somebody who listens to the episodes before watching the film, maybe as a way of knowing whether or not they want to watch the film. Uh, I would say go and watch it. Uh, I'll give you a heads up that there's nudity, there's some language, and it's also just a, often a very uncomfortable film emotionally, hmm. um, and al- also very stressful at times. Um, but it has some of the best acting I've seen in a long time, some really exciting, vibrant scenes, um, and it adds up to this very, I'd venture to say, uh, enigmatic film that I think is nonetheless exciting. Not exciting in the way that one would find an Avengers film exciting, but it is emotionally and intellectually exciting. So I'd say go and watch The Master before listening to the rest of this episode. Um, and I will, as, as always, I'll talk a little bit about my history going uh, leading up to the movie, which is... Uh, I was certainly a Paul Thomas Anderson fan by that time, and he had made, five years before, he had made what I consider to be a masterpiece, and when David and I on Battleship Pretension talked about our top ten of the aughts, uh, I placed There Will Be Blood as number one. Um, it's just such a marvelous film, and, and in a way it almost feels like that is that is the the peak of paul thomas anderson's career so far mm-hmm. like it, probably either that or magnolia and it's so weird that to think that they're such different films um it does seem like between 2002 when he made punch drunk love which is another movie i really like um between that and the master so there's a five-year difference something seemed to shift in paul thomas anderson as a filmmaker uh, and we will be doing a whole episode at some point about his films, just his whole career. So we don't, I don't want to spend too much time on it right now, but, um, but he seemed to be shifting from honestly, like there was a big Altman influence in his earlier films like Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Um, and then, uh, it's certainly no secret to anybody that he shifted into full on John Houston mode, uh, right down to the fact that. Daniel Plainview sounds a lot like John Huston mm-hmm. in There Will Be Blood. Um, but it's such a marvelous film and one that I don't know if anybody, including me, uh, could have expected. And so I think that was his peak. And then I had heard, just the way you hear things, that he was working on a movie that was l- loosely based on Scientology. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I had heard that the movie had died. And I thought, that's a bummer. That would have been interesting to to see. And then when it finally got, it was finally resurrected, and then you found out, oh, the head, the, the sort of head of this religion, which they're not going to call Scientology, they call it the cause in the film, the head of this will be played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's like, okay, you're speaking my language. And um, so I was very excited to see the film. I believe I saw a midnight screening of it the day it opened wow. in 70 millimeter at the Arclight. So like the first showing? Uh, yeah, I think so. Wow. Um and, uh, yeah, I was, and it, it blew me away in a way that not on the way I was expecting, but in a better way, uh, there are often, and I think I've talked about it on the show before, there are movies and often performances that I go into having a very specific expectation of the way I will like it. And then it winds up subverting that. And so in a way 
these movies or performances or whatever, they will disappoint me in one way, but then I like them so much more. Um, and it often has to do with characters. I have an idea of what a character is going to be like. And then it winds up being so much more than that. Uh, and I like, again, while it winds up disappointing my expectations, it winds up also, uh, surpassing them or exceeding them, uh, quite a bit. So, uh, so yeah, uh, and we'll go into more detail about the master in a moment, but that was my, that was my attitude leading up to it, uh, was that I was fascinated to see PT Anderson's follow up to his masterpiece and uh, so we can move on from there. Uh, yourself. Are you uh, saying that you were uh, let down by it? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I don't think it's as good as There Will Be Blood. Um, but I do honestly think it's much better than Inherent Vice. Um, no, I was just, I was excited to see like, okay, he's certainly shifted as a filmmaker. Now mm-hmm. what's that going to look like in, again, it's not his, The Master is not his second film, but I feel like it's, it, his second film in the new era of his career as a genius. Yeah, kinda. <laughs> and so like, so now that we've seen what he is capable of with there will be blood, what, what is he going to do now? Tackling again, not near, not merely Scientology. We, we all knew it was going to wind up being bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also more specific. Um, but like in doing so he'll be, talking about maybe religion in general or whatever, or the concept of belief, like what, what is he going to do with that? And so, so I was very excited. And again, while I don't think it's as good as there will be blood, I thought it was uh, pretty spectacular. I liked it. Um, I, I will say this, when I saw it in a the theater, I wasn't as, as on board, hmm. I think as um, maybe you were coming out of it. I feel like that, I, my sort of my relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson movies is a little shaky, and I don't really know why. I've I've thought about this a lot, and I can't put my finger on exactly what it is about his movies that make me go. Or when I hear other people say, "Oh, that was a brilliant movie," like There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. which I recognize is extremely well mounted. To use that word, it's like extremely well shot. The acting is is flawless. I would mm-hmm. say from um, Dan, the Daniel Plainview character. Daniel Day-Lewis's acting is flawless. But um, maybe it's this, I feel like, I think this is sort of the semi-conclusion that I've come to is that is that my reaction to Paul Thomas Anderson is what a lot of reaction, a lot of people's reactions were back in Kubrick's day to his mm-hmm. movies. They go like, okay, so 2001, it's great. You know, look at all the special effects. And he's trying to say something, and it's mysterious, and it's opaque at times. And it's definitely conversation material. Um, and there's uh, all, none of those things are, are something to slam the movie about. Those are all good things, but I still, I still feel removed from the proceedings in the movie. I I feel cold. I feel like the movie is cold Mm -hmm. and it's hard to engage with the characters when it feels so much like, um, yeah, like they are stand-ins for an ideology, especially in the case of the master or, or, uh, a type like Daniel Plainview is a type. Right. And so you come away from the movie just like, uh, uh, instead of saying, speaking so broadly, I'll say I now, um, as opposed to people talking about Kubrick back in the day. I feel cold coming out of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I just feel, 
uh, a little removed. All of them or just the most recent ones? Because I feel like them. I feel like there's a lot of emotion in Magnolia. There's a ton of, but but even that, uh, it's maybe it's uh, to use the opposite, too hot hmm. in that case, and I'll explain because that movie is so layered with so many densely, richly written, dramatic characters. Um, with at all of them at their their worst point in life, um, that you and the music is pervasive in that movie. It never mm-hmm. stops, and so you're constantly in this in this uh, like oversaturated emotional state for what two and a half three hours that movie is. That yeah. when I when I came away from it, I felt it wasn't so much that I was cold or that I didn't connect with the characters. It was that I was like just completely exhausted. Hmm. Um, even when I watch it, I, I remember seeing it twice at the theater and feeling that way coming out of the theater. Even when I watch just portions of it now on DVD, um, I feel the same way. I'm like, oh, it's so, oh man, that, that, what a horrible place that person is in. Hmm. Maybe I'm, I'm glad I'm not to that point in my own life. Maybe that's the takeaway every time I watch it now. But, but the point is that the master, while it's all those great things, um, it's an ideological masterpiece. It's an acting masterpiece. It's a cinem- cinematographical. Say it, say it for me. Cinematographical. Sure. Um, masterpiece. Um, so there's no reason for me not to like it, and in fact, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of it feeling great, I feel I almost feel like a a movie that I put that label on feels like it also has to like wrench my heart mm-hmm. or make me really connect to the characters and to come away feeling like I've seen a piece of my own life reflected in this, but this movie, uh, I feel like I'm shotgunning a little bit, but this movie, the master feels like the characters are so large. Um, and yet the movie is so slow paced and the cinema cinematography is so big Mm -hmm. that I, I don't feel like I fit into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I could see one can make the argument that the film is kind of uh, hermetically sealed. Like it's just, it exists. It is completed. It's inside, it, like it's inside a snow globe, so to speak. And like, that's okay. And it, well, one could say impenetrable. Like you and that's can't, okay because that's so much of, of the movie thematically is that. Yeah. It's like, here's a person who's like completely irrational and floating around in the world. And he's pulled in almost by like gravitational pull into mm-hmm. this hermetically sealed world. Yeah. That offers him something that he has not had up to that point, that, as far as we yeah. can discern, and that is a family structure or a structure at all. And so the movie presenting itself as a hermetically sealed world makes perfect sense. Which is why it doesn't bother me, because I'm usually along those lines, uh, along your lines, where I feel like there needs to be some level of relatability for me. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to see something of myself or just some kind of human universal yet specific human experience within it yeah uh so that just some kind of in uh and that's a film that doesn't really provide you with one but because of this which which would normally bother me but but because of the story it is telling i'm more okay with it and i I, it feels like i didn't read much after i saw it the first time Uh, i've read a lot for this like that i watched it and then i read tons of stuff online like different uh, uh film reviewers talking about it and it feels like that's sort of the the universal feeling about the movie is that it's – I would put it – let me say it like this. I feel like that you can – it's either you loved it or hate it, but I want to say it a different way. There's like this this phrase that I like called binary adjudication. 
that's just my own whatever. Um, but it, it's one of those movies that 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 because it's so broad thematically and character wise, um, and it doesn't really feel like it's coming to a point. It feels like it could be coming to very many points, mm-hmm. and any one of those points you could kind of cherry pick off the master tree and then talk with your friends about it and they probably have some other view of it so because it has so many possible uh meanings it almost feels like it doesn't have any any meaning almost like paul thomas anderson didn't have a point of view if i can be that bold Hmm. so that he he like maybe he liked the fact that these characters rubbing up against each other, their character types rubbing up against each other would ca- would cause the friction that it indeed does. But maybe he didn't have a point in terms of you know Scientology is bad or this sort of uh, hermetically sealed world, especially if it's a so called religion, is terrible. It should not it should not exist. It never comes to that point really. Um, it shows maybe some of the damage that can be done, but yeah. it doesn't really say that it's a bad thing. It doesn't even really say that it's a bad thing if Freddie never found the yacht at the beginning of the movie. Right. Um, maybe he would have wound his way back to the girl's house and found out that she was gone some other way. Um, maybe he would have, in any case, he would have matured. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't feel like that if you really try to pin down what Paul Thomas Anderson thinks about it, that there, there might not be anything there. And it, I'm saying this sort of as kind of as my point of view on the movie, but I've read that in so many other articles you know, written so much more eloquently than I just said, mm-hmm. that I feel like that that might be true, that that there's this, like, you love it for various reasons, but you can also hate it, and the reason you might hate it, it seems like, is because, what's the point? The reason you love it is because of all these incredibly powerfully well-done things that it does, like the acting, like the cinematography, mm-hmm. um, like the interesting world itself, um, like Scientology, like, so let's... let's think about Scientology for a while and you probably haven't thought about it in this way before. Um, so it's good and bad at the same time. And depending on who you are, it's kind of both mm-hmm. and it's valid both ways. And if you, if you do think it has a point of view and that's what you think the point of view is, and you espouse that as your own point of view about the movie, you're kind of right <laughs> because it kind of is that, but it's also this. Yeah. It's there. It's, it's interesting. There, there is certainly a specificity to so much of the film. It mm-hmm. feels like it's telling a very specific story about very specific characters. Um, but there's all, all, there's so much going on that you can, like you said, you can pick whether consciously or unconsciously, like you can find like, oh, this thing resonates with this part resonates with me a lot or this aspect of the film resonates with me a lot. And like, and I feel, and it resonates with me so much that I think that's what the movie's about. But of course there are, there are like 10 different things that that could be said about in regards to the film. So you get 10 people in a room and each of them has a different interpretation. Uh, but I'm not sure if I'd say that that means that there is a lack of point of view. Hmm. Um, and one could say that I do. Okay. Well, I'm nervous to say this cause I feel like it might get us more into theme, but I will go ahead and, and say that, uh, by looking at it from the relationship standpoint between Freddie and Lancaster, um, I feel like therein is the condemnation of this cult because I think you see two men that genuinely do see something in one another 
that they want, that they relate to and they want to be with. I don't mean romantically. Like I think they just see a certain kindred spirit in the other person and they want to continue being friends. They want to continue being in each other's lives. But because of this thing, because of who Lancaster is and the idea that maybe he's bought into what he is saying or he recognizes I can't have somebody like Freddie around in my life anymore. He's too erratic and my life is one that requires a lot of control of myself and of other people. And to have him, to have a variable like him is not going to be we can't we can't control him. And maybe that's what Lancaster likes about him. But it's the exact same thing that keeps Freddie out of his life. And in that same way like I think Freddie responds to Lancaster's confidence and his willingness to really zero in and focus on Freddie, whereas other people would just shoo him away. Mm -hmm. I think he really responds to that and says, like, this is a guy. There's a scene where Lancaster is yelling at Freddie and saying this as an insult where he says, I'm the only person that likes you. Mm -hmm. Now, I think he zero. I I think the reason he uses those words to be hurtful is because he recognizes that Freddie probably thinks that's true. Right. That no one likes me except, but this guy's putting a lot of time and effort into me, and I like that. But the reason he's putting time and effort into me is because, kind of this attitude of like, well, I've got to be the. I'm sort of the poster boy for if the cause is going to work or not. Because look how look how much of a nutcase I am. And if these guys can change me, they can change anybody. So I think Freddie is aware of the agenda that Lancaster has. and But that doesn't change the fact that these two guys are attracted to one another. They're, again, not romantically, but they there's just this force pulling them together. And I feel like if you were to remove the cult and the agenda these guys could probably be very good friends and genuinely be good for one another. I don't think, I'm sorry, go ahead. But I think because, because of this thing that's bigger than the two of them, even though one of them created it, um, they're, they're never able to be this thing that they, that they want to be. And that might actually be a positive force in each other's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like, so again, for me, whatever point of view there might be in regards to the concept of a cult, um, I think you can find that in the effect that that has had on their relationship. Um, but what I will also say is that uh, one of the reasons that I like There Will Be Blood so much is because that's a, that's also a movie that it's hard to pin down thematically and say it's about this one thing. Like I remember the way that it was touted was uh, ambition versus faith. And it's like, yeah, I mm, guess it's about really. that. And I don't know, four other things l- layered much sure. deeper than that. Like, But I guess it's, that's, if that's how you need to sell it, that's how you need to sell it. Like, yeah. But, um, but, I, kind, but I, I actually appreciate the, the type of movie or the kind of director that has a story inside him that needs to be told whether he understands it or not. I feel mm. this way about Apocalypse Now or vertigo. Um, just it's like, this thing is screaming to get out of me. So I'm going to do it and I'm going to, I'm going to explore as much as I can. And that idea of merely trying to explore who these characters are 
and what they're about and what they want and the world that they inhabit and just trying to kind of make sense, make as much sense of it as you can, knowing that it never will make total sense. I feel like that's a thing. I feel like that is also a point of view. And I think it's one that Paul Thomas Anderson increasingly has over Mm. the last, I'm going to say 10 years. Mm. Um, so sorry that I I went on for a while. No, no, no. I, 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 first of all, I want to, I want to say that I don't, I don't want to paint myself as a guy who doesn't appreciate movies that have multiple interpretations. Mm. I mean, I, I love 2001, for instance. I just mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Um, I, I love a movie that, I mean, it, it almost sounds like I was saying that I, I, I need to know, you know, that the filmmaker right. is, you this need is, a movie spelling it out for yeah, you. That's I what don't, you need. That's the worst thing mm-hmm. that you could have. Um, because then it's just propaganda. Yeah. You're a um, big fan of God's not dead. You like to know what exactly. you're getting. Top top movie this year or last year? Um, no, I I so I appreciate the fact that it does have uh, multiple possible interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was just speaking in the context of uh, wondering what Paul Thomas Anderson himself was trying to say. Yeah, and there I think there is a dividing line between uh, what the movie can possibly be saying and what a filmmaker is trying to say, and being able to define sure. define the two, and then. You could even just when, once you've figured out. Oh, I think it's about this from his perspective, or even in an interview, you could probably find it out, find out what that is, and then discard it because you because for you you have had this emotional connection to it, and to you it means this. This is why you're going to take it into your top ten, for instance, mm. um, not because of what they said or what they made it for, but because of why it affected you. Um, but in this case, I really do feel like it's. Um, I don't know what the filmmaker is trying to say. Mm. And that that feels like a mark against it when it shouldn't be in this age of postmodernism when it almost doesn't matter what what the creator is no. doing or saying it's it's what you feel and what it is what it means to you all this relativity <clears throat> um, should be the order of the day for this movie as well and that's fine I, I again I want to reiterate that it's okay with me that you have a different point of view about it than I do for instance if we even do um, but I'm just curious. What, what what did he mean by it? Yeah, I, I yeah, guess I guess it would have helped if I had like listened to an interview with him or something, but I did not. Well, and I don't. That's my fault. I, I certainly would not want to actually, like, hmm. because I don't think a movie should need you to listen to an interview with the director, sure. so that you can get a handle on it. Like, and and that's what I'm saying. You have to do with this is, movie, though. What was that? That's what I'm saying. You have to do with this movie, though. Well, and I've never felt the desire to do so. Hmm. Um, and if you want to count that as a mark against the movie. I can't argue with you because, you know, to, but to me, I feel like it's, it's what little I've seen of Ingmar Bergman, like his stuff is, his stuff tends to me, tends to feel like an exploration more than an actual uh, declaration. Um, and so, and as you mentioned, 2001, I feel like that's up there as well. Um, just like I said, a filmmaker, having a lot of things maybe bouncing around in his head and, you know, in his heart, if I might be a little, you know, cheesy in my imagery. Um, and then just needing to do what he can with it to make as much sense of it as possible, knowing that it's never going to make perfect sense. I don't actually know what he was trying to do with the master, which, and that's the thing is while I don't necessarily like the idea of postmodernism, I will say that like, with when it comes to art 
the idea of just saying like, okay, this is, it's like, this is what's in my head and this is all I've got. So make of it what you will, Mm -hmm. you know? And when I, you know, when I think of a painting, like an abstract painting, you know, what sometimes, well, what is the painter trying to get across? Well, sometimes just trying to get across the emotion that's inside him right now. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to make a point. He's merely trying to express what's inside him. But I think we don't, view film the same way because of course film is not just one person there's a lot of people involved and there's editing and there tends to be a story and because of that we feel like we we need a certain we need to be able to we know how story works and so it's like okay so the climax of the story is right here and the climax is often where the theme will come in and really declare itself okay well there's not much of a climax in the master Mm -hmm. it doesn't it's not a typical three-act structure by any stretch of the imagination and so to me this feels very much like an abstract painting one that has a huge crew and and also you have actors who are also interpreting specific you know things that he has written what would you say is the emotion that he's attempting to project one could say rather than get to a point i would say i would say longing um i'm not sure if i'd say that's is that an emotion longing a sense of longing wistfulness like uh i don't know the desire to have or be somewhere that you're not kind of to be somewhere where you're not to be something. something you're not to be with someone that you don't that you're not with I feel like when you watch this film, certainly Freddie, there's a great deal of longing there mixed with regret. And I think when you look at Lancaster, I think you see a longing. It could be, it it feels crass to just say a longing for power or control, but it could just be a longing to make some kind of sense out of the insanity of life. Um, And, maybe a desire to wield that not even necessarily over other people. But, you know, if I had a bunch of people following me and calling me master and saying that, like, I've got the, you know, I've got things figured out, then that would certainly make me feel better. But also it might make me feel like maybe I do have things figured out. Maybe I'm not as directionless as I thought I was. Hmm. Um, I don't know. So I, I'd say like from an emo, if I were to, try to sum it up and say it's a it's this emotion i would say i would say longing which i think stems from a certain degree of loneliness i think neither man can would ever be able to articulate that they are experiencing a longing oh sure um especially freddie you mentioned earlier that uh, freddie uh i forget how you worded it he he understands the the agenda i think Mm -hmm. what you said of lancaster i don't i think you're giving him a lot of credit um, I don't think he under. I don't think he thinks on that level. I think he is, for any number of reasons, the war, you know, drinking too much like alcohol yeah. straight out of a missile or whatever that was, yeah. torpedo. Um, for whatever reason, he is so animalistic now. He is, he's he's mm-hmm. reduced to basically nothing but uh, you know the the impulse of the id. You know, yeah. just what's in front of him or getting what he needs, what he feels like he wants. It's kind of all he, so a person like that encountering this yacht, which is for him kind of a place to hide away, mm-hmm. um, and then encountering somebody in that yacht who has everything put together, um, maybe it's attractive to him, but he would never understand why, I believe. 
um, so that he, it's not like he recognizes the motivations of Lancaster Dodd and says, okay, that's fine with me. I like the fact that he's offering me as a, that's you know, like a replica of fatherhood, you know, so that I can, uh, so I can have a, you know, it's some mulacrum, if I can use that word of family, <laughs> you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't think he thinks on that level. And I don't think that Lancaster Dodd for all of his intelligence is thinking necessarily, here's a guy, um, that is so debased, has been so debased by the war, for mm-hmm. instance, which is never really mentioned again after, I can remember, after we see the, the helmet on him and he's like on the beach with his pals, his, yeah. uh, his fellow soldiers. Um, he's not thinking, well, this man has been so debased by his life experiences that I can, that I can help him. Or, or that, that is what he's thinking. I don't think he's thinking beyond that, that he's somebody that I could, um, that fulfills my need to be, um, to relive my own animalistic years or my, my own, uh, I have, I have a longing for, uh, the disassembled life before mm-hmm. I came across this idea for science, uh, for uh, the cause. Yeah. Um, I don't think either character is really thinking on that level. I think that's an interpretation, um, that l- lends too much to them. I don't think that's there in the movie. Oh, I think I think it absolutely is. I think uh, in the performances certainly, um, but also I mean just the way in the in I think one of the, maybe the best scene of the film. It's hard to say the uh, processing scene. The processing scene. Oh, it's great. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Like that's uh, like I think that's probably the best acting Joaquin Phoenix has ever done. Mm. Like it's it's so amazing. And so, um, but you have Lancaster talking to him about this. Uh, Dolores, oh, was her name Doris. Dolores? Doris. Yes, yes. Um, and just talking about how, like, this is who he wants to be with. And he says, why aren't you with her? And he says, I don't know. Why, you know. And and you see this self-hatred that comes with, like, this is the person I want, and I'm not doing anything about it. And I don't even really know why. Like, that's somebody who understands that he is basically fallen victim to his own instincts. And they have caused him to go against what he actually wants. And the realization of why aren't you doing the thing you you so badly want to do and if you can say genuinely i don't know like imagine how how heartbreaking that would be that you're going against your own self-interest and you're not 100% sure why um so i feel like and in that moment and especially on Joaquin Phoenix Phoenix's face and again i don't know if if the characters are consciously aware of it, but I definitely think there's something there. I do too. Um, again, like I don't, you said like, you don't think they're thinking on that level. I'm not sure I'd say they're thinking on that level either. I think it's all underneath. And I think they're, I think it's written that way. And I think the actors were directed in, and certainly I think they had a hand in it too. Uh, (laughs) uh, I don't think it I don't think like, Philip Seymour Hoffman's like, I'm I, look, I'm clueless as an actor. And PT Anderson's like, just do what I say. Just read it. Like I'm You'll about to read it. Um, but, uh, so I do think, and I, that's the thing, this, again, this is my interpretation. Um, and it is rooted very much in character, um, and relationships and also just the way the relationships unfold, or one could say even, uh, dissolve because Freddie does stop drinking. Like he, or at least he drinks a lot less and he seems a little bit more able to, what's the word? Like he can, he may not be able to like work his way into larger society, but he can work his way into this. 
you know, there's a long sequence where the whole cause seems to be focusing on this man specifically, yes. kind of as a way of proving that Lancaster was right and that he is above reproach. We can we can take care of him. You know, he we don't need to be suspicious of him as Lancaster's entire family is. And and in that moment, you see like you see a commitment on the part of Lancaster to Freddie and then Freddie making progress, whatever that might mean uh, in the terms of the cause. But um, and you see him becoming more focused as a person and less animalistic. And I think the more focused he is that's when he starts to really that's when his acknowledgement of Lancaster's agenda really comes into play. I need a picture in my mind. I can't think of a moment where Well, I think in the jail cell you have um uh you have him saying like accusing Lancaster like right, you're right, making right, right. this up and all that. Got it. And you just see a general and when he's talking with um that's- char- the character's name is Bill uh, but it's after book two has been released mm-hmm. and oh, outside the yeah. Deal. And he asks him like, well, what do you think of this? It, it, sorry. Uh, Freddie asks Bill, who is another follower mm-hmm. asks him like, well, what do you think of book two? And Bill is very frank about it and says like, I think it's ridiculous or just, or he says like, I feel like it's just, you could take a whole, the whole book and boil it down to a three page pamphlet. And Freddie then like, calls bill outside and then like attacks him and is angry at him but you can tell like the anger has to do with him trying to overcome his own doubt in that moment like bill has you know another true believer has called out uh, not necessarily called out lancaster but has said what freddie is probably thinking but won't admit to himself and i can't remember the sequence like what if that came before the jail cell scene and all that stuff Oh no, the the thing with Bill that comes after. I pretty think late. that's that's pretty late. That's very shortly before Freddie jumps on that motorcycle and just keeps riding. Maybe it's a mirror uh, a mirror of the moment earlier when uh the guy kind of speaks out at the party. Yeah. And he says, you know, this is a bunch of rubbish. Later he visits him, uh, Freddie visits that man yeah. in his hotel room and beats the crap out of him. Yeah. Um at that point though, he's not doubting. At, at that point, Yeah, he's still that's that's early enough that I think he's still kind of on board, or at least he's getting on board. That's uh, that's at a point where because he's so animalistic, if mm-hmm. we can keep using that word, that there, he can't really articulate any of what he's hearing, like rearticulate or regurgitate anything that he's like being taught in terms of the cause. Yeah, but he can do what it seems like seems to be like a kind of an easy easy out for a lot of people who are quote unquote religious, um, but can't articulate. They get angry. They uh, you know they lash out at those who who are articulate about their lack of belief. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it, it, that seems like what that scene's about. It's like, um, I, because he isn't, isn't going under the, uh, you know, the direction of Lancaster. Lancaster didn't say, right. take off, you know what you got to do. Right. Uh, he just sort of went off on his own volition, beat up the guy. And I think it's because he, that's the only way he's, he can see if he's even thinking on this level at all fitting in is like i'm sort of like i can defend yeah this belief as well this is how i'm going to believe it uh, uh defend it by knocking out anyone who doesn't believe or right. obviously doesn't believe later i i will grant you that the mirror scene where uh he beats up the guy outside the yeah. uh the book uh debut yeah um that i hadn't really looked at it that way this is a i should look at it again but i hadn't looked at it 
in that light where he's acting out not just as a this is the only way I know how to prove to you that this is real mm-hmm. or this is right or correct by beating you up. It's because I, I'm not sure that this is worth anything. And yeah. yet this is the only avenue I have for my own, you know, you know, bag of tricks, you know, to do, and that's to beat you up. So I don't know. That's a very interesting well, sort of interpretation of that one scene. Well, and also looking at the scene right before it's when, um, Lancaster Dodd is presenting book two Mm -hmm. and he talks about like that he's boiled it down. He's figured it out. And the key is laughter and people in the audience react to that. But what's interesting is you cut to Freddie's face and he looks thoroughly unimpressed Hmm. as if to say like, like really you've boiled it down to that. Now, obviously there's going to be more to it, but this is like, this is book two. You've boiled it down to this very basic thing. And then a lot of bluster around it. And like the look on his face is one of confusion and disappointment as if to say mm-hmm. like that he's, he's now aware enough to know that that doesn't sound right to him. And right after that is then Bill saying, I don't, I, I think this is a bad thing. And then he beats up Bill. And then shortly after that, is uh, the motorcycle scene where Freddie just leaves. Takes off. You know, so I feel like when you look at that sequence of events, mm-hmm. uh, one right after, pretty much right after another, I think you get a pretty good sense of like, okay, this is a guy who doubt is coming into his mind. The more coherent he gets as a person. Hmm. Um, and so it's, that's one of the things that I find interesting about the movie is that the cause, it does in some ways make Freddie better. He's to a certain extent, like his nature is still there. He still beats up Bill. Um, but he's able to think, I think he's a bit more lucid. I think he's, I think he's able to operate better in life, uh, and acclimate better to, to life. And the more he gets acclimated, the more he sees the cause for what it is and sees Lancaster well, that's probably because, for what it is. Per se, the, it wasn't the cause that was changing him. It was just the simple fact of being in a structured environment at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when he beats up Bill, it's uh, it perhaps uh, simply a reaction to, wait a minute, it's not about the cause that maybe at that point. It's about what you're saying if – uh, if it became the more prevalent thought mm-hmm. could destroy the structure that I have that is providing me such comfort right. that I've never had in my life. So don't say that anymore. Uh, here's my fist. Yeah. So that's very, very good. Oh, th- yeah. Thank you. No, I, I hadn't thought of it in that way. So mm-hmm. you're opening my mind, Tyler. Smith. Oh, watch out. Are you the I'm, master? I might be. <laughs> um, I will have been nominated for six podcast awards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, to me, and that's the thing is, any of these thoughts that I've had are a function of looking at the relationship first and looking at it as the central. And I think anybody would say the re- relationship between these guys is the central part of the story. Yes. But I also feel like it's key to understanding w- certain themes of the film. Um, and it's the thing that I found most dynamic is just you know because I've 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 had friendships where it's like both me and this other person just want this to work, but then it just doesn't for mm. whatever reason, just because of like, 
like this person enables you to be more of who you are and they're more of who they are. And you realize, Oh, that's not, it's like, I think I, I think we worked better before. Hmm. I don't know. It's, it's a weird, it's almost like, but then you can't go back in you, but you can't go back, you know? And it's, and it's, it's kind of a tragic thing, but it's also that idea of, I remember, you know, certainly, I'm sure people have heard this before. The idea that certain people are are in our lives for a season. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's yes. a, it's a very Christian thing to say. It's also a very Billy Joel thing to say. Is it? So many faces in and out of my life. Some will last. Some will just be now and then. Say goodbye to Hollywood. I don't know Billy Joel. Is that from Uptown Girl? It's from Say Goodbye to Hollywood. You freak. <laughs> I don't actually know that song. Oh, it's a good um, song. But. Uh, yeah, and so it, this idea of like maybe the, sometimes the reason that somebody is in your life only for a season is because maybe you move away or something like that. But other times it's because you both grow as individuals and one can make the argument that as you grow as an individual, you're growing more into more into the person you are, you are and they're growing more into the person they actually are and you realize, oh, we're not – these things might not be super compatible. And there's a sadness to that. and I fe- And I feel like – as much as the master, I think, probably condemns Lancaster Dodd, certainly for the things that he does and the things that he's espousing, and it always, you know, it will always show somebody criticizing him, and it will show his rather extreme reaction to things, even to the point like Laura Dern's character, who mm-hmm. is, you know, a true believer, she reads book two, and she finds an inconsistency between one and two, and she asks him about it, and he yells at her. Yes. Um, so I think it's a film that that certainly does not romanticize who he is, but I think it still finds a humanity in him and sees, again, in my opinion, uh, a longing that he feels. And uh, that's that's a thing that I like about Paul Thomas Anderson, even, even when he's telling stories about, you know, kind of monstrous people like Daniel Plainview or Lancaster Dye. I think he still finds a human core mm-hmm. in them. As deep down, it might be really deep down and it might not be really obvious and it might not, it certainly won't justify or validate the bad things that they've done or excuse them, but it's there. And I think he need, I think he as a director needs them to be there so that he can more understand how somebody can arrive at a certain idea mm-hmm. uh, or certain actions. Um, so can I ask a question? By all means. Uh, would you feel like that it's, I mean, I, there's, it's one thing to say like a film, some films are good because they have backstory mm-hmm. for the characters. So when you pick up at the beginning of the movie, uh, you know, you get bits and pieces of their past so that you can kind of better understand uh, the change that then transpires over the course of the rest of the movie. Other movies don't give you that. and the, But the movie has a different sort of agenda, to use that mm-hmm. word, so that it doesn't necessarily matter whether you know their backstory. Um, in this case... And I'm not trying to challenge you. I'm just I'm really curious. Like uh, when you say that the the relationship between between these two characters is the crux of the movie, it's the heart, the soul, the middle mm-hmm. of the movie. But you don't really know really where either one came from to get to the beginning of the movie. You know where you find them at the beginning of the movie. Um, do you find that detrimental to? I to, don't. I know some people do. Um, not showing how things were, um, not showing who a person used to be or where they come came from. Uh, that's very, that's not a thing that I require. 
Um, I mean, in, in case of, in the case of this movie, if you put so much uh, import mm-hmm. on the relationship, uh, that's what the whole movie is about to you, mm-hmm. generally. Um, and yet you don't really know who they are. Then what is the end value of whatever change happens? Uh, to me, because I feel like it puts you in the same position as the characters themselves. You know, Lancaster only knows the Freddy that is presented to him right now. He doesn't know who mm-hmm. he used to be. And Freddy, because he's the lead, um, and Lancaster's more supporting, um, we see some things that he's flashing back to. We see more of him, but not much more. Nope. Um, and so we are kind of in the same position as Lancaster, and 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 Freddie certainly doesn't know much about Lancaster. So, you know, they we sort of, and I feel like to me this sort of bolsters my view that it is very much about the relationship, which is it doesn't let it doesn't really allow us to know more than these guys know about each other. Um, we will see, you know, we will see scenes of like Lancaster and his wife and that sort of thing, but not very many of them. Maybe two. Yeah. Just them. Yeah. And, Three. um, and we'll, we'll see some of Freddie cause he is the lead, but at the same time, like we see, we basically just see him bouncing around, just not working out in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then only when he meets Lancaster, do we see do we start to unpack him as a person just as Lancaster's doing? And so, um, so yeah, it's, it's not a thing that, uh, that, that bothers me. I, I, I tend to like it when we know less about a character and let their current actions and, uh, words speak for themselves. Um, it also, I think allows the actor to really dig into something and show us, the history of the character on the actor's face. Hmm. And I feel like Joaquin Phoenix does a lot of that in this film. Um, and there's so many close-ups, like you can see, like you can see the actor's pores and stuff like that. And so can I say this is almost a a slam on the movie, um, a slight detour, but I, I watched, uh, I won't go into this a lot, but the, the going, going clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, documentary, uh, recently, uh, in fact, just two days ago, it totally ruined my Tuesday. <laughs> it was like so depressing. Um, and then, I, uh, uh, right upon the heels of that, I watched uh, John Huston's 1946 semi-documentary. It's like a bunch of clips he compiled of mm-hmm. uh, uh, soldiers in the army in World War II who were sent back to the front line, uh, back to uh, away, from, uh, pulled out of the front lines basically mm-hmm. because they had broken their minds. I mean, they, they were these were guys who had. They started stuttering or they couldn't walk or in yeah. some way or, or another they could not fight. And so the the camera uh, is just trained on these guys as they're being interviewed by army psychologists and it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the lines in the scene where Freddie is being interviewed by a psychiatrist uh, in the army about his experiences are taken directly from, mm-hmm. from this movie uh, called There Will Be Light. Um, it's just like an hour long. It's on YouTube, actually. Let there be light. What did I say? Uh, there will be light. And there will like, be light. And it's like, uh, let there be light. I was going. Let, to let there be blood, and uh, there will be exactly. Light. That's yeah, what it sorry is. about that, uh, Mr. Houston. So, uh, and watching these two after having watched uh, the movie, and then watching the movie again after, and forgive me, but it felt. We, I mentioned this a little bit before we started recording, but it, it felt like the movie feels like a cartoon in comparison to 
the materials that inspired it. Um, the movie has these extreme extreme characters. I mean, they're at the extreme of what they're of who they are. Mm-hmm. Freddie is like the most broken, the most irrational, the most animalistic that a human, I guess, can get and still function in any kind of society. And Lancaster is at the at the extreme of I have to control my world. Uh, I will I will make sure that I get my way. I will make sure that people listen to me and trust me, no matter what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, and these two guys are, you know, they represent one L. Ron Hubbard and the other any one of uh, hundreds, thousands of guys that came back yeah. with these uh, mental ailments. And then watching the movie, it just feels so. I don't know. It just feels like almost like a disservice to the the hell that was wrought by Scientology. Or the hell that was wrought on these men by the war. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that a movie has to like live up to actuality in that way or reality in that way all the time. I'm just saying that I think the close proximity of seeing this, this devastating, uh, these devastating uh, interviews with this, these poor men and then watching what L. Ron Hubbard was all about mm. uh, created in me this like sort of aversion to what I'm looking at on the screen, especially when you see and here, uh, Freddie mm-hmm. quoting the same, essentially the same answers as these poor guys back in 1946 or 45, whenever they were interviewed. Um, it feels like a disservice. I have no point other than expressing how real the material was that, that, uh, inspired this were mm-hmm. compared to the actual product, which doesn't really feel, it doesn't, it just that hour long documentary makes you feel for the effect of war on a man and this movie is it's almost like it's just it could have been anything it could have been something you know like his whole family died in a fire sure you know it doesn't matter um because that's just that's the little bit of backstory that we get for him because he has to be this twisted for it to work against this kind of man like right. Dot. does that make sense so yeah. i'm not complaining about the movie per se i'm complaining that almost i wish i hadn't seen those things because it, it kind of de- demotes the movie in my mind, when you see kind of the reality of of those things, and it's so interesting because to me, I think it makes the film more specific because they're not trying to show all of Scientology; they're trying to show the beginning of a very specific cult. And at the beginning of something, certainly there's still going to be a lot of control, and there's going to be some extreme ideas. But only only at the end of the film do you see Lancaster Dodd in his uh, Montgomery Burns type office uh, with his wife. Sitting, I was thinking Daniel Plainview, actually. Oh, sure. Very similar. Uh, with his wife sitting very menacingly off to the mm-hmm. side in an almost Lady Macbeth type of uh, capacity. Very much so. Um, only then do you really get a sense of like, okay, this thing is going to get so big that now it's going to get really dangerous. Because before yeah. you have... You have them, you have uh, his wife reacting to certain criticisms and just getting like very upset and that sort of thing. But they don't have the power to do anything about it yet. By the end, you now see, oh, now it's this mindset, but they've got power and they've got money and that's going to be a problem. And so I like that it doesn't jump in right, you uh, you know, 30 years in when they've got tremendous power, that it starts at a time when you can see that this thing might have appeal and that it's based almost entirely on the charisma of its founder of which there is plenty. So 
I like that it's not trying to tackle the evils of this thing, rather trying to understand how it was allowed to get to that point where it could do tremendous evil. Um, and then the other side of it is, you know, I have no doubt that there were soldiers that came back from the war, any war, um, and reacted the way Freddie did, but they don't really, they're not very photogenic, you know, better to have the, the soldiers that will certainly, they'll break down crying, talking about like, you know, their experiences. And it's like, well, crying is something people can relate to and people can understand and like, and like, oh my gosh, the horrors of war. But if it, if the horrors of war tra- transformed somebody into a drunken animal, I feel like that's a very uncomfortable uh, reality of mm-hmm. war and one that I think uh, we don't like to think about. We like the idea of, you know, the noble broken veteran, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily want to explore the full range of that brokenness. No, totally not. Like, we'll we'll watch not. best, you know, we'll watch best years of our lives, which I love by the way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's amazing. I thought of that movie while I was watching this again. Yeah. This is, he is the, 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 the more realistic version of, uh, uh, Frederick March's character. Yeah. I was, was going to say like, one of the things I love about best years of our lives is when we have the idea of the veteran, we do think of, I believe his name is Harold Russell, who was the character who lost his arms mm. and is just a decent guy. He's a decent guy who's lost his arms, but he's always going to be a decent guy. They broke his body, but they won't break his spirit. Frederick March's character He's rich. He's going to go back and be with his family. Everything's going to be fine on the outside. But on the inside, that's where he's broken. Mm-hmm. And it's a very uncomfortable truth. And I feel like this is a film that is more interested in how broken a person can get to the point that like, we don't like spending time with him. We don't want to watch him. We cringe at the idea that this is our main character, you know, and stuck with this guy for two hours. Yeah. It's like it, uh, I I was listening back to um, the BP episode when we were talking about our favorite movies of 2012, and we were talking about the master. And David mentioned that if you saw Freddie Quell wander into a room, you everyone would immediately be aware of him, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't want to be around him. It's like negative charisma. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And even if even if he said, "I'm a veteran." People will be like, well, thank you for your service to our country, but we're still scared of you. Please leave. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so I feel like, you know, because I've seen Going Clear and then I've, uh, you know, I think Let There Be Light might be a special feature on, on the Blu-ray for for the master. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know if that's 100% true, but I, I, I hope it is. I think there is. I think there's like a John Houston thing on there. It might be that. Okay. It might be something else that I don't remember. But I, I, um, I, my hat is tipped to Paul Thomas Anderson if he. Oh did sure, that. that's great. Um, but I might be wrong about that, so so don't hold me to it. But I'm not um, tipping my hat just yet. Then indeed. Uh, and so, but yeah, but I've seen some. Because that thing's like an hour long, right? Yes. Okay, I've seen one or two of the interviews from it, and they are harrowing. Um, and the, and you showed me one just when I got here, mm-hmm. or at least a snippet of one. Mm-hmm. And those are harrowing, and and it sounds, what I'm about to say sounds horrible. That's the part of war that I think we're all good with. 
the kind of like, oh man, look at that guy. Like he's crying. He's seen some real bad stuff, but you know, he's going to get the therapy he needs and he's going to be all right. He, he's reacting in a very human way. Freddie does not react in a human way. He acts, as we've said, the word that we keep coming back to is animalistic. Mm-hmm. And certainly, and Lancaster refers to him that way as well. It calls him an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so that's why I'm okay with, with what the film is doing. Again, it's like, it's like what I said before. Um, the film, I had an expectation of what I thought it would be and what I thought it would be is something that I would like. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to see Philip Seymour Hoffman play like the head of a cult. Are you kidding me? This is going to be awesome. And it is awesome, but in a different way, in a way that is, again, more specific and one that I have a harder time uh, categorizing, you know, and saying like, all right, well, this character is obviously evil. What he's doing is selfish. What he's doing is controlling and manipulative, which, of course, are bad things. But underneath, you actually do see a core of humanity there. And then with Freddy, you know, again, bad guy's not so bad and the good guy is certainly not that good. Um, it seems weird to be talking about a good guy and bad guy in this movie, but you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I, and I'll say this. I feel like it's a testament to the film that we're talking about it the way we are. Usually on this show, we will, t- and so what I'm saying is usually, you know, I, Robert, you're messing up the format. Um, Oops. But usually we'll just break it down like, okay, here's what we thought of it in general. Here's what we thought of these performances. Here's what we thought of Mm -hmm. certain shots or whatever. And indeed, we can talk about that. Uh, I don't think we necessarily need to because the film, I think, invites us and maybe even inspires us to go beyond just all the different aspects of the film. And I think it's important to talk about them in general, but I think the film welcomes you to just accept who Freddy is, accept who Lancaster Dot is. And the fact that I accept them. And like what fascinates me is that these characters are, for lack of a better term, a little cartoonish. I'll say heightened. They're a little heightened. Mm -hmm. Like they're not people that you would run across in everyday life. You would not run across Freddy in everyday life. You certainly would not run across Lancaster Dot the way he presents himself. Uh, not merely his personality, but also his cadence. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't run across that every day. And yet, I don't question it at all. I don't see, uh, there's a term that I use from time to time about certain performances, which is like, I don't see the strings. I don't see the actor right. making a choice. Like, these actors inhabit these characters, and I don't question it for a minute. And I feel like this is a film that is actually surprisingly unselfconscious. Like, it just, it just is, and you, and you can watch it. You know, um, which is a thing that I feel like is not a thing that I thought I would ever say about Paul Thomas Anderson in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, he was a very self-conscious filmmaker and I don't even necessarily mean that in a negative way. Um, but then again, in between punch drunk love and there'll be blood. I don't know what happened in his life that made him decide to embrace a certain degree of naturalism. Um, while still also embracing a certain kind of beauty. But anyway, we can move on from that. Um, so, okay. Can I say that I, just real briefly, I, I do, you know, we talk about the your approach to the movie and like it's the relationship between the two. For me, it really was, despite all the things I seem to be slamming the movie about. Yeah, why um, do you hate this movie so much? I don't hate it. This is just it. Um, uh, because the first time we see Freddy is with his, uh, you know, battle helmet on mm-hmm. what do you, 
I hate that I I think helmet probably helmet just fine. helmet yeah um and it's I timed it today it was like a 40 second shot mm-hmm. of him just kind of looking at something and he's like disturbed by it or afraid of it mm-hmm. um but you're staring at him so that plants this you know that that that's the establishing shot of where he's from or what he's going through right now and so when he gets to uh his real life it is the, the, the darker flip side, so to speak, of Frederick March, because he, he's, he lands a job at the department store, you yeah. know, photographing people. Um, he's photographing the, the fake version of families. You know, it's mm-hmm. like people made up to look perfect. Um, and he takes those pictures. And he, he, there's something in his stance and the way he's looking at them and treating them that you feel like this is all like laying on interpretation. But you feel like that he's, um, because of everything that he's seen, and done whatever that might have been in the war um he looks at this and he goes this is ridiculous mm-hmm. what you are in front of me is ridiculous this is what i came home to yeah is you slathered up in makeup so you could take a photograph yeah um and then you know so he runs away and he's a migrant worker and he's like killing men with his uh with his brew <laughs> um but the whole idea of the movie the rest of the movie being uh, what happens to a man who is broken by war when he comes and he's completely disheveled in life, no mm-hmm. structure whatsoever, and he comes across a man who is absolutely structured and how that attraction yeah. works. It's not so much their characters. It it really is, despite everything I've said about what leaves me cold about the movie, what makes me really like the movie anyway is that very thing, which is that yeah. it, they represent the horror of war meeting the the horror of self delusion yeah and the the bizarre attraction that is created from that and i think that is created in a broader sense in america after war because i mean we're talking about total war mm-hmm. world war 2 and hundreds of thousands if not millions of men dead um because of what happened because of what had to be defended um but it's not like it's all greatest generation stuff well i mean you talked even about like the the photography that he's doing and it's families made up it's not like it's still like still a family unit they're still together they still love each other and all that but it's it's putting the best face on everything Mm -hmm. which i think was a lot of i mean we know this as as film students who have an appreciation for film noir Mm -hmm. that like there was this idea of like, well, hey, World War II, one could say it was a good war. I mean, obviously, it was the horrible things, but no one would ever say that America, like, was on the bad side of it. That, like, we were fighting against genuine evil in the, in the Nazis and that right. sort of thing. And so, um, so like, oh, we come back from war and we're victorious and we're strong. We're, we, we beat the depression. We beat the Nazis. We beat the Japanese. And now it's time to embrace American goodness. Everything's going to be fine. But of course, we know from film noir, which explored the, you know so many of the times, like these characters are coming back from the war and are have been changed, yes, and are now deeply aware of the underside mm-hmm. of life in general, or the, they're, the, they're, the dark side. They're floating basically through yeah. life, unmoored, you know. And then, um, and so this is you know it just, and I'm not I'm I'm not sure if. Uh, P.T. Anderson meant to do this. I'm sure he probably did. I think he's a very purposeful filmmaker. So by having, you know, the, these picture perfect families, the idea that like that Freddie, who's alone and has seen some horrible stuff in his life and been responsible for some horrible things that he has to not merely he's not merely expected to be acclimated back into life. 
but also the job he has is to look at perfection mm-hmm. and to look at the ideal that is being touted as real and that there's only so much he'll be able – he's not going to be able to do that, you know? Well, it's uh, – I mean, his the picture that's painted of his life and his outlook on life is – it's drenched in uh, unreality. I mean, the first thing we see him do is to have – simulated sex with a simulated woman yeah um and then he simulates uh the freedom of a a route to freedom with this alcohol that he just concocts out of nothing um and then he's you know surrounded by fakeness at the department store for one thing it's all advertising and then he's having to deal with fake families in front of him yeah so he's running away from all this when he uh when he runs upon the yacht his whole existence is fake yeah. And he has nothing to hold on to because of presumably what he's seen in war as well. He's completely broken. Um, and then to come across someone who offers him something real. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This is this is where you belong. You're the exact kind of person we need. We need someone to build up and show that it's pr- it, it's it's true that my yeah. cause will be good for humanity. You represent humanity right now. And then that's fake, too, by the end, Tim, to the point where he walks away from it. Well, it's worth noting that, like, if you want to look at some parallels or or mirroring, like you said, early in the film when he's taking photos, he has no stomach for what he's doing and the falsehood of it. Well, he also takes photos later in the film of Lancaster Dodd dressed as a cowboy at one point, which I think is actually very comical and I think it's meant to be. Uh, and listen right from L. L. Ron Hubbard, by the way. Oh, I, yeah, I, I don't doubt any of that. There's at a picture all. of him sitting on a fence in a cowboy hat, <laughs> and then there's also a picture of him. I found. I mean, if you just Google, yeah, uh, Lancaster Dodd. I mean, uh, L. Ron Hubbard cowboy. You get the picture. It's very similar to the one that yeah. Freddie takes, and also the the and kind of him in front of his desk and with the feather very, pin. There's yeah. a picture of L. Ron Hubbard with a feather pin. Yeah, which he. Doesn't use that. Of course you know, not. Probably uses a typewriter. So he's still fi- fi- yeah. photographing a fake family. Yeah. But he's much more okay with it now. But you also wonder, it's like, is he okay with it? Mm. It certainly is an echo of something that he had no stomach for before. And he will eventually reject all this stuff. Like the fact that he leaves, I think, causes you to look back on his attitude in general and wonder like, okay, how much of this did he believe? How much did he merely want to believe? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's... I don't know. That's the kind of thing that I enjoy. And, and I think Joaquin Phoenix creates a character that is somehow specific yet also vague. A guy who is not remarkably self-aware may not always know why, certainly doesn't know why he always does things. Um, and is willing to just kind of go with it, but he still has feelings. He still has reactions to things. And I don't know. It's like I said, it's a wonderful performance by Joaquin Phoenix and the way he's able to just layer things on in, in a way that seems somehow effortless, which is a weird thing to say. Like that performance in many ways is not effortless. Like if you look at the way he stands, the physicality of the character, like these are choices that Joaquin Phoenix is making, but they all do seem of a piece. They all seem, to just extend naturally from who Freddie Quell. Oh my gosh, is. he is very believable as that very unattractive person. <laughs> very, yeah. But yeah, the way he stands, uh, it's. I, I remember reading one uh, brief essay about this person's interpretation, which was it couldn't be his only interpretation, but it's about the 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 naturalistic acting of 
of your Brandos and your James Deans mm-hmm. uh, versus the old school, which would be Lancaster Dodd. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so balancing like the, the method oh, sure. acting versus the kind of old school st- kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's like watching, you know, actually Montgomery Clift is like a really good, him acting opposite Charles Lawton. Exactly. You know, as uh, much as I love Charles Lawton, and he's actually a lot more naturalistic than one would think. But yeah, it's very much. You know, it's funny. I just watched recently, like in the last three or four weeks, I watched um, Judgment at Nuremberg. I love that movie. And it's just, you know, so many people were nominated for Oscars in that film. Yeah. Um, Montgomery Clift included. He's in one 10 minute scene where he's on the stand. But boy. Oh, do you remember the scene? Yeah. Do you know the scene? So he's like it's basically tragic. chemically castrated during the war yeah. again. Um, and he's having to explain himself and he's also mentally deficient and yeah. the way he writhes in that witness box yeah. and the way, the way he enunciates or doesn't enunciate is yeah. so, I'll say it's pathetic, yeah. but it's, it's heartbreaking because this is a person who's completely broken and he, his acting style is up against, you know, uh, Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Well, and in that scene, he's going up against uh, Maximilian Schell, who would actually win the Oscar for Best Actor, yep. uh, and his, who is also a younger actor, but mm-hmm. I think because of the nature of that character, is a lot Much more, more self-assured. And, yeah. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it, that's, it'd be interesting to watch this whole movie and then just watch that one scene, because it, it does feel like that uh, Joaquin Phoenix has taken a page from guys like Montgomery Cliff, yeah. um, and the way he just naturally oozed... Uh, lack of confidence or awkwardness or the just the natural inability to never connect with anyone in the room it's just ooh, it just makes your skin crawl a little bit but you're also marveling at this unbelievable acting ability in front of a camera it's really good and i'm thinking of the scene also where um or to go back to the scene that we talked about earlier where he's uh where freddie is being interviewed by uh the psychiatrist Mm mm-hmm and he's, he asks, like, um, what about these crying fits that I see in your report? And which, again, is lifted from the original documentary. Um, and he says, he gives an answer that feels true. Mm-hmm. But then he, he so quickly shifts to a laugh mm-hmm. to kind of cover over it. It feels like Joaquin Phoenix himself didn't even know that that was going to happen. Yeah. And that's when I think about the goodness of the act, the quality of the acting in this movie, I think of that moment and I think of how um, just naturalistic and wonderful and that's not the right word at all for it, but believable mm-hmm. and off-putting it is. It's like, yeah. oh, he's so believable that yeah. he's that self-deluded or so able to self-delude him on the turn of a dime. Yeah. It's just, it was really, really good. Yeah. It's, you know, I, and we should uh, start moving on, but I will say, yeah, it's, Listeners, if you made it this far, like, you know, uh, I guess it's not a movie in which you can talk about spoilers. Like, it's not a plot-driven film by any stretch. But, um, but yeah, if, if we haven't convinced you yet, seek out this movie. It's, again, it's not the most pleasant movie, but it will be engaging, I would say, if nothing else. Captivating, one could say. I'd say so. Um, and yeah, and we will move on, actually, to our companion film, and I'll actually use this as a way to transition into that which is um you know we're talking about characters main characters that are just very very unlikable and i'll say this i've only seen him in a, in like i think two or three movies but there are very few actors as 
uh, horrifically unlikable as Steve Railsback, um, who is the lead in the Richard Rush film The Stuntman from 1980. Oh. And I feel bad saying that about Steve Railsback because as a person, I'm sure maybe he's fine, but he gets cast in very, very unstable, unlikable characters. I've got to be honest, I don't know what else he's in besides this. Oh, he played uh, Charles Manson in Helter Skelter. Huh. I saw that. Oh, man, he looks like him. Yeah, he does, Yikes. doesn't he? Yeah, there's a reason. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, uh, and so when I saw The Master, I immediately knew. So, again, this episode's been cooking for like three years. Um, I immediately knew, oh, I know what the companion film's going to be. It, it has to be the stuntman. Because so many parallels. Because the character of Cameron, played by Steve Railsback, uh, reminds me a lot of Freddie Quell. Um, he's very animalistic. Mm-hmm. He's extremely unlikable. I, I'm like, he's way more unlikable than Freddie. You know, like I, I, I root against him. I want bad things to happen to him. Um, Meanwhile, the character that is kind of, for lack of a better term, our antagonist, his character's name is uh, Eli Cross, and he's played by Peter O'Toole in an Oscar-nominated performance. Um, He's very much much, uh, a Lancaster Dodd type. He's almost messianic in the way he presents himself as only Peter O'Toole can. And... um, and yeah, it's it really again just to what we're talking about, or at least what I talk about when I talk about the master is the relationship between these two very different men, and there are a lot of parallels in the stuntman, where Steve Railsback plays a, a wanted criminal who stumbles his way into being a stuntman on uh, a Hollywood film, the director of which is Eli Cross, played by Peter O'Toole, and so there's a desperation to the Cameron character. He needs to just stay away from the cops and all that. And, uh, so Eli sees that, Oh, I can use this man cause he needs me, you know? So I'll just use him as my stunt man and, uh, I can control him and it won't be a problem except the character of Cameron can't really be controlled because an aspect of him being the kind of criminal that he is, is that he is very wild and very extreme and you cannot control him. And that seems to really intrigue Eli. And so he gets more and more involved uh, with Cam- in Cameron's life. And, he, and he, there's a line that I wrote down in which Eli says to Cameron, excuse me, you're almost as crazy as the young man I'm making this film about. Besides, I've fallen madly in love with the dark side of your nature. Yeah, I wrote that down too. It's like yeah. so, it's such a perfect parallel. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and I, I there's a lot going on with the stunt man. I think it's a wonderful, I mean, we talked a lot about falsehood in the master and the stunt man is almost like a con movie, like one of those, uh, con man movies in, in questioning reality, what is real and what is not. Like there are moments when Cameron finds himself in the midst of like what seems to be, uh, a very dangerous situation that is in real, that is real life, but it was all a stunt and no mm. one told him, um, which I think is, it's, it's a surprisingly fun movie. The stunt man. It is. Um, but anyway, it's, it's so, a satire basically. Yeah. A, it's a satire with a, a healthy dose of suspense and caper tone. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it's often very funny and yeah. 
you know, one of my favorite images <laughs> is uh, Eli Cross on his little crane chair. So it just that can go basically anywhere. Like that's okay. So for listeners that may not know, like, so there's a crane, like a camera crane, which can cause, which you can, you know, hook a camera to, and it can go flying way up in the sky or all the way down to the ground. And, uh, so Eli Cross's character has a chair put on a crane. And so he will just often lower into frame from nowhere (laughs) and then he'll just follow. And then as two actors are walking, he'll just be sitting next to them on his crane chair, just following along with them. And what's amazing is like, you have no idea where this crane is. You don't know. It seems like it goes on forever and you don't know why. It's very funny. It's hilarious. I love it. And it makes the character seem ever-present. And yeah, it it's makes very much very a paranoid. movie that I think uh, is especially appreciated by anyone who knows or enjoys filmmaking. I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like a, an obvious thing, but seeing things like the, the chair mm-hmm. used for that effect is it's just very clever, smart, funny. And and it winds up, like you said, it is, a, it is very satirical. And so, like, you know, the director just being ever-present and just... And just lounging like some kind of Roman emperor yeah. uh, is hilarious. And and again, Peter O'Toole, uh, Oscar nominated for his performance, um, is a whole lot of fun to watch. Just, I said Roman emperor. I feel like that's probably correct. Just, I think so. Just the way that he's he's just lounging. He's always lounging uh, as he gives you know orders that could potentially kill a person because of a, a horrible stunt they have to do mm-hmm. um and he's all he's always just so amused by the world around him and the fact that people might have real uh emotions and mm-hmm. in, in real responses to things and uh yeah i feel like i don't talk enough about how wonderful of an actor peter o'toole was um and how effortless he could be. And this is a very much an effortless performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, his lines are the best written lines in the movie. Oh, sure. It's almost like they were written by somebody else, frankly, because they're they're so eloquent. Mm-hmm. And then he, because he's Peter O'Toole and can enunciate and yeah. has elocution like at 100%, is just very fun to listen to and watch. Yeah. And he's got hair in this movie that I've never seen him in any other movie. It's just kind of this flyaway, kind of floppy blonde yeah. hair. And it makes him look younger. Mm-hmm. And it, I, well, interestingly, the, the stuntman takes on a wig or mm-hmm. a, a hairstyle that's very similar. So there's that that parallel as well. Because the movie is about, I mean, thematically, if we want to go a little more broad in the parallels, it's it's about someone who's completely lost in the world being incorporated or ingratiated into yeah. um, another hermetically sealed world. In this case, it's a film crew, which anyone that's worked on one in any capacity knows that it becomes a family. Mm. If, if it's a week, because you're working so closely and everything has to be so perfect for those moments when you're shooting, it becomes this rarefied uh, bond with other people. And uh, it's very similar to, a, to the cultish feeling. I'm not going to say that, that, you know, uh, film crew is like a cult, but the feeling of being in a family for just a short time um, with no real reason to feel that way, except that you are there at the same time as these other devoted people, is is what makes the parallel fun mm-hmm. um, between these two movies. Well, and, and I will say that there is a bit of a difference because while I feel like uh, Lancaster and Freddy and the Master, I feel like there really is. I don't think they're necessarily on equal footing, but I do think that Lancaster is a little bit more willing to lower himself to be sort of on Freddy's level 
um, rolling around in the grass in front of the house. Yeah, kind of. I think, and I think he, he enjoys that. I think he, I think there is a loneliness to where Lancaster is because he's the master. He's above everybody and, you know, it's lonely at the top, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I think for some, for whatever reason with Freddie, he feels like he can, he can finally sort of be may, maybe not necessarily himself, but a version of himself that can have a lot more fun and be silly and that sort of thing. There, there's a, a kind of a brotherly aspect there, but it's uh, not there in the in uh, the stuntman. Certainly not there in the stuntman. In the stuntman, it's pure manipulation, and but it's not. And Eli is is looking down on the Cameron character, but again, like you said, he's he's fallen madly in love with the dark side of his nature. Mm-hmm. He's intrigued by him, and anytime you're intrigued by somebody, um, even if you are as far above him as Eli is with Cameron, as far as status on the film and, and level of control, anytime you're intrigued by somebody, like you'll probably let your guard down a little bit and just allow yourself. Uh, and you might forget yourself a little bit because you're so enamored with this person in some way. Um, so while it certainly is not a brotherly thing and I don't think it's on, uh, I don't think it's an equal playing field by any stretch. Um, I do think that there's, you know, more going on there and maybe even I'm reluctant to say this, say it a very, very low level envy on the part of Eli just a little bit. Again, almost minuscule, but like he's a guy who has power and likes it. He likes the control he has. He likes lording it over people, but he still, he can only ever be a certain type of monster. He looks at the animal, the the complete lack of self-awareness on the part of Cameron, and he sees just the way that he operates. And I feel like he's like, I think that's what intrigues him is like, this is a guy who has no control over anything, Mm -hmm. most especially himself. And so he can just cut loose in a way that maybe Eli can't or maybe can't anymore. And I think there's, I think that's what intrigues him. I think there's a certain degree of, I won't say longing, I won't go that far, but like a certain degree of envy of like, oh, wow, I wish I could do that. Or what? Or what must it be like to do that? I don't know. Interesting that Eli sees so much freedom in this fugitive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and it, and it is worth noting, incidentally, that the Cameron character is, I believe, a Vietnam vet. Yep. And so, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I think you know, P.T. Anderson is enough of a film historian that I wouldn't be surprised at all if he was influenced by the stuntman when he made The Master. Um, I don't know. Do you think so? I don't know if in, uh, I wouldn't say influenced. I would say he's. Prob- I'm certain he must be aware of the movie. Yeah, maybe not influenced. Certainly not as far as style um, or tone or anything like that. But I think, like you said, like the parallels. Considering that the master is an adapt is an original screenplay, like I feel like th- there has to be. He has to have seen the stuntman and at least, like you said, be aware of it and aware of. Hmm. the nature of these characters. It's just too, it's too, too similar. Close. Too yeah. close. Um, and so, uh, so listeners, if you haven't seen the stunt man, seek it out. It is interesting. And at the very least, it's very funny. There's a lot of trickery to the film that I really enjoy. And that undoubtedly got the Richard Rush nominated for best director. Hmm. Uh, even though the film was not up for picture, it's, it was up for adapted screenplay director and, and actor. Interesting. And, um, 
and yeah, and so it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot more pleasant to watch than the master. Although again, Steve rails back. I think I admire him as an actor because of his willingness. Like he, this is a, an unselfconscious actor. Like he's willing to just be whatever the act, whatever the character needs him to be, whether it be Charles Manson or this, uh, this animalistic stuntman, um, or I'm sorry, animalistic, uh, criminal in the stuntman. Um, and so I want to go back to the idea of this being, as we get into kind of the thematic discussion, I want to go back into, into the idea that, uh, that this is about a relationship and, and in some ways it's a relationship of equals, but not really. I feel, I do feel like when, it, when push comes to shove, I feel like Lancaster and certainly Eli, um, but Lancaster, I think will reassert his status over Freddie when things aren't going the way he wants them to. Um, and I certainly think that the film is more complex than, than the way I'm going to talk about it because it's not just about this predatory character who sees an easy mark in Freddy. Like I do think he sees him as a cause. I mean, it's literally, you know, the, the name of the movement is called the cause. So I think he sees Freddy as a cause and a way to validate what he is doing and feel like, well, not only if the cause can change Freddie, then there must be something to it. But if I can change Freddie and if I don't give up on him, then I must be a pretty great man. Um, and so, so I kind of wanted to talk about this idea and, and I, I'm reluctant to go too deep into this because, uh, I don't want to just rehash what we, what Josh and I talked about when we discussed, um, uh, going clear, the, the documentary about Scientology, because in that, we were talking about the differences between Christianity and and Scientology and the idea that there is a difference, regardless of what people might think or like to think, there is a difference between Christianity and your standard cult. Uh, and in that same way, uh, I wanted to talk about f- uh, friendship and specifically friendship with Christ and what that looks like as opposed to what it could look like here um, in The Master. Um, it is... But that's the thing, you know, Lancaster, he is the cause, you know, he, just as much as L. Ron Hubbard is Scientology, which is a point that Going Clear makes many times. Um, and so, and as, especially as it becomes more successful and he gets more followers, the more he becomes just an icon of this thing to the extent that by the end of the film, Freddie has left once, but then come back not really sure why he he's not really sure why he came back um but as he's talking with lancaster like lancaster is is you know sort of and i'm sure the way he sees it like he's cutting freddie a lot of slack by allowing him to come back at all but he does say if you leave uh if you leave me now in the next life you will be my sworn enemy and i will show you no mercy mm-hmm. Um, and Lancaster's wife actually says to Freddie, I didn't write it down, but I remember it. She says like, you're either in for a billion years or not at all. This isn't fashion, you know? And that is very much a cult like attitude and certainly a, a Scientology type attitude. Um, you know, th- there are like million year contracts and billion, uh, billion year contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, 
you know, it's very much an all or nothing thing. Um, and while, I mean, I mean, I guess Christianity is all or nothing, but there's a lot more grace, you know, like if you left the church and then came back, undoubtedly the church, you know, or just one could say just the Bible itself would be like, absolutely. You can come back whenever you want, but you only get one. If you leave again, you can't come back. Like there's not, there's none of that. It's all about reconciliation. It's all about welcoming a person in, uh, and it's not conditional. Um, and so, uh, I've got a number of Bible verses here and, uh, and I feel like I'm not doing a, a super great job of talking about the, the, the theme here. Um, but, uh, and I'm, I'm very aware of the, of the time as well. So, um, five is calling. Yeah, I know. It's too late already. Um, might as well just spend the night here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so John 15 verses 12 through 15. Uh, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. Now, it is appropriate that it, here it talks about servant and master, and master is what people call Lancaster Dodd, um, and that people are expected, certainly the people close to him are expected to do everything that he says, and if he considers them a friend at all, which I don't think he would ever say that, uh, or at least not mean it, um, it is contingent on that. Now, I had this thought, right here it says, if you are my friend, uh, sorry, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, that sounds you know, pretty contingent. Uh, but which is why I'm glad that there are, uh, you know, sentences before and after, um, where it says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, in this case, what it's again, context is very important. If you simply say, you're my friend, if you do what I say, that sounds a little rough, sounds a little harsh. But if I have started with it's important that you love other people so much that you're willing to die for them. That's what it means to be, mm-hmm. you know, that that's the greatest possible love. And then as we know, this is what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to lay down his life for us. Well, also, <clears throat> if I can interrupt <clears throat> the fact that, I mean, if you took that out of context and you told somebody that wasn't a believer yeah. or already has some animosity against the church and you say, well, yeah, Jesus said, Jesus himself said, you are my friends if you do what I command. They go, uh, exactly. Yeah. He, he's put a condition on it. If if I do what he commands, then he'll be nice to me. Mm-hmm. But what he commands is that you love one another. <laughs> Come yeah. on. It's like there's nothing to argue there. Yeah. If you do what I command, meaning you're my friends if you simply love each other. Yeah. Like I have loved you. And then he, and he then says, you know, I no longer call you servants. And again, this is a situation like Jesus is God. If ever there is a master, that's it. And and by following commands, one could say, well, obviously we're just servants at that point. But it's like, no, I don't consider you that. I am, you know, a servant, like, and for this reason, that a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Like, he has no idea. He just follows follows orders and then just goes on with, with what he needs to do, trusting that the master will just do what he wants to do. And certainly that is what the situation is in the master and in the cause. Mm -hmm. Like 
he's just going to do what he wants to do. He won't necessarily give any reasons. Whereas Jesus always says, here's why you should do this. Um, now the reason might be as broad or, uh, as, as, uh, fundamental as like, because love is a good thing and this is the best way to show it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. And so, and again, like I'm, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit from, uh, from the idea of, uh, going clear the episode in which we talk about that, but you know, um, the difference between Jesus and the character of Lancaster Dodd and certainly the character of Eli Cross is that as much affection as, as those characters may have for, for their friends and the people that they associate with, um, their control is still the most important and they probably would not care so much for these people that they would be willing to die for them. Uh, if anything, they would require that you die on their behalf. But this is a situation where Jesus contextualizes everything. He says, there's no greater love than, than laying down your life for your friend. Saying that knowing that this is something he's eventually going to have to, to right. prove himself, you know? Um, and I feel like in almost any kind of cult, the person in charge will say these things knowing full well, I'm, this is not going to apply to me. I'm never going to have to do this. Um, whereas Jesus says like, he doesn't simply say like, do what I say. He says, follow my example. I will be the first one to do this. Um, and in doing so, I'd say he's a better friend than, than, Lancaster than I've ever been. So, um, so, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at these other, um, at these other verses and I, I'm, not sure if we will say all of them, but, uh, but what I will say, so I'll look at some quotes from, uh, from the master. Uh, one thing that Lancaster will do sort of as a way of, of retaining power is he will express encouragement to Freddie. Like at one point he says, you're the, you're the bravest boy I've ever known. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's a pretty big thing. And even yeah. though he calls him boy, uh, you know, you take what you can get and it's like the bravest he's ever known. That's really something. But then he will also say stuff like what a horrible young man you are. This is acting like an animal, a dirty, a dirty animal that eats its own feces when hungry. Like that's, that's a rough thing to say. And, you know, and he says stuff like I'm the only one that likes you. Uh, and so by, by tearing him down, it sort of would make Freddie like eager to be built up by the same man. It's, it's sort of that idea of like, if there's a teacher who is very harsh on you, but then they say something nice, it's like, wow, they must really mean it. Mm -hmm. This must be the truth. And, um, so I don't know. That was just something that, that I probably should have mentioned earlier, but it's something I find very interesting about the dynamic of the relationship. Um, but it's, uh, it can, it can be, uh, honest, you know that yeah. the 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 truth of how bad you are and the yeah. truth of how good you are, but coming from somebody like Lancaster Dodd, it doesn't just feel like honesty. It feels like his way of manipulating you. Yeah, um, as would be any cult leader or, yeah. or any I don't know Dale Carnegie wannabe. You know, just like climbing the ladder of success to say to get anywhere, you'll say anything. Well, and and again to to compare and contrast with with Jesus, which is literally like I mean you know, and Christianity certainly says 
we are sinners, we are broken. I mean, that is a way of saying you're bad. Um, and so one could say like, yeah, but Christianity breaks you down so that you can be loved as well. But it doesn't, it doesn't require perfection. It doesn't say, it, it says like, uh, I love you even, you know, while I didn't write this down, but like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like there's nothing contingent on it. We don't need to do anything to earn something. We're not earning God's approval. We already have his love and we already have his approval as a function of Jesus. And like, I don't know. It's, uh, I, again, like I feel weird talking about this because it's so, it's so big. I, it, this is something I've been meaning to say on the show for a while. Like I always, I recognize it's a Christian show, so I'm going to be repeating Christian principles, but I always worry that I'm becoming repetitive. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. But <laughs> and I realize I'm going back to the same book over and over again. Uh, I think that's just fine. I know. It's just, a, it's a weird thing. Uh, like, I wanted to be honest right now with, like, how I'm feeling. Like, like it always feels like... I think there's something else. Like, isn't there another theme or point you could make? Is that, is that what your head is saying to you right now? <laughs> well, just something like... Like, okay, we're getting to the boring, honestly, I'm, I'm projecting onto the listener now. It's like, okay, we're getting to the boring part of the episode where, uh, they're going to talk about how Jesus is a good thing. Yeah, got it. Either I'm a Christian already, or I've listened to the show long enough to know that this is where we're headed. And so like, I always worry that by bringing up, you know, Bible verses that people will just shut off and don't, what was that? Don't, don't worry. Uh, All right. Sorry, listeners. Uh, as Robert can attest, actually, before we start recording, I'm in a weird headspace. And, uh, and I figured, uh, I'm gonna be open and vulnerable and let you know where my head is at right now. Um, I'm here for you, Tyler. Thanks, Robert. So, uh, I was about to ask you to read something, but you're dr- drinking Oops. water. Um, what would you like me to read? Uh, Hebrews 4, verses Oops. 14 through 16. The other page. Uh, Hebrews four fourteen through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. <clears throat> For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Okay. So, you know, when you look at this, this imagery and this idea approaching, approaching the throne of grace with confidence, like a a relationship with Christ, it's something that, and I say this as somebody who has virtually no confidence at all, as just shown, um, nice illustration. Oh, thank you. Uh, you're... It's, what's the word? It's empowering. And I know that may sound strange because it's also very humbling, but it's this idea of like, no, you have the love already. That's done. You can come to me with confidence. Like there is, this goes back to the idea of like the master hiding his agenda from the servants. Like, no, 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 you, you know what I want. I want to love you and I want you to love me. I want a relationship and I've done everything I can to make that happen. So by all means, come on over. Like, you can approach me with confidence, you know, and you can approach me knowing to go back to earlier in this verse, knowing that I've, I know what it's like to have been tempted. It's horrible. I hate it. And I'm sure you hated it too. But so don't worry about that. Like I know how hard it is to be you. And so 
come on over. Whereas when you look at, you know, to go back to going clear, when you look at like L. Ron Hubbard and then you look at Lancaster Dodd, like there's a part where uh, L. Ron Hubbard is, is questioned about the idea of like, have you ever considered the idea that you're mad? And he, and by the way, he, he responds by saying, oh, yes. And the way he says it actually is mirrored in a moment. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman at one point, I'm sure he saw that interview because at one point in the film, he goes, oh, yes. And just like, <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty great. And so, um, mm. but he, he then goes, so it's like, he goes, oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, he goes, uh, the man who thinks himself, the man who never considers himself mad is an, is a madman. Yes. And that sounds very, that sounds very humble. And there's, and there, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the question then is, look at the rest of the person's behavior and does their behavior reflect that? Because if you consider yourself as potentially crazy and you genuinely think that's a possibility, even if it's like a five to 10% possibility, that will probably, I think, humble you in the rest of your behavior. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but as, as we look at Lancaster Dodd, like even just the way that he presents himself, uh, when Freddie first asks him, like, what do you do? And he lists these things and he starts with author. Okay, fair enough. But he eventually gets to like nuclear physicist and, th- uh, like theoretical yeah, science. Right. I don't remember exactly everything, but, um, but it's like nuclear physicist is a, that's a big deal. And I'm not saying it's not true. But if I had to guess, I'd say it is not true. Like, this is a guy who's very interested in presenting himself in the best possible way. Um, not somebody who, who is interested in humility, who's interested in seeming like just one of you. He is above you, and he wants you to be thoroughly impressed. He's not your friend. He is not your friend. If he can, if he toys with the idea of being your friend, you're going to be if anything, you'll think like, oh my gosh, this guy who's so far, this, a nuclear physicist who's also an author and created this amazing religion, he wants to be my friend. That's great. Whereas, now, and, and again, like, I don't want to, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to be so oblivious to the idea that everything I say in this regard negatively in regards to like Lancaster Daughter, L. Ron Hubbard, the same could be said of Jesus, but when it comes right down to it, like Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Like that's a very – and this is at a time when people didn't wear shoes. They wore like sandals and they got like sweat and mud on their feet. Like that's gross. And it's – there's there's a difference between, you know, acting humble and literally being so humble as to – like, you know, right now I wouldn't wash your feet. Like, you know, you're a friend – you're a genuine friend of mine and I wouldn't wash those disgusting – I'm looking at them right now. Like you never trim your toenails, you got hair all over your face. It's disgusting, right? I walk through the chicken coop. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I I I, I worry that uh, people think that I'm just picking and choosing and saying like, oh, when Jesus does it, it's good, but when Lancaster Dodd does it, it's bad. But it's exactly the same thing. I do think there's a difference as far as not merely what a person says, but also what they do. And again, to go back to the most basic example, Jesus sacrificing himself for us. And I don't think Lancaster Dodd would ever sacrifice himself for any of these people. Maybe his wife, maybe, but I don't think so. Nope. Um, So uh, Micah 7 verses 18 and 19, 
who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread uh, you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now, compare that to, if you leave me now, in the next life, you will be my sworn enemy and I will show you no mercy. <laughs> you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Hmm. There's a bit of a difference there. One of them sounds like a friend. One of them does not. Uh, one of them sounds like somebody who is perpetually who is exerting control and exerting uh, superiority over you. Um, and then First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, you know... Th- if you look at all of these verses together, which is a thing that I like to do and I didn't do it this time, I sometimes like to take, okay. And maybe this is sacrilegious. I don't know. Uh, to basically take a lot of different verses that are about a similar thing and put them all together as like one big passage. And then acknowledge that like, this is from these different places. I know. Um, and basically just read it as a paragraph about, a paragraph about God and the nature of his friendship and the nature of his mercy and love and and sacrifice. Um, but if we look at these verses together, we get a picture of what friendship, real friendship looks like um, and what a real relationship looks like. And as much as, as I do respond to the friendship between Lancaster and Freddie, it is eventually Lancaster's status that keeps him from ever fully pursuing a relationship with Freddie. Like I think after a while he realizes we're too big. We can't let this guy back in because he's erratic and we can't control him. And whereas God's status and specifically Jesus status actually uh, makes him want to causes him to desire a relationship more and to desire it beyond anything else um, to the point of literally dying so that that friendship, should we want it, is cemented and can't go anywhere. Um, and so I feel like there's so many more things to talk about in regards to, like from a Christian standpoint, in regards to the master, but I feel like we already covered it in the Going Clear episode. Mm. Um, but I know that I myself... I don't know. Maybe you're the same. I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll throw it to you in a minute. I myself am, am somebody who, who feels like God is somewhat impersonal at times. And if anything is, uh, the, uh, a disapproving principle, uh, and you get called to his office and it's like, and yeah, yeah, he'll forgive you, but his arms are folded and he's shaking his head and he's just so he's the, he's the principal from the breakfast club. Um, and is just like, and just, cringes at the idea of of you and choices you make and that sort of thing like that is sometimes how i view god and and then i and then my view of jesus is a little bit different and i know jesus is god but it's a little bit different but it's probably it sometimes is a little bit closer to like how someone might view an l ron hubbard which is 
so far above me that he can't understand me and looks down on me. And yes, yes, he'll hug me if he has to, but it's not going to be like a really good hug. Like it'll be like a, all right, let's get this over with. Um, so really like I have a hard time approaching Jesus as my friend, you know, and, and I won't use words like buddy because I feel like that maybe makes it a bit, the concept a bit too casual. But like when you think of what a friend is and certainly, and I didn't include it here, but it talks about like, you know, friends that stick closer than a brother, like someone who just will be with you through thick and thin. And I have a hard enough time accepting that from other people, uh, much less Christ who is, who is genuinely above me. But every thing that I need to remind myself of and in doing, and I guess that's what I'm doing in, in this episode is acknowledging that like every single thing that Christ has said or done is about reconciliation and about seeking friendship and a relate and a, and a relationship. And I need to, and maybe by looking at Lancaster Dodd and Eli Cross and yes, L Ron Hubbard, like I need to be able to make a contrast. I need to be able to look and see like, no, this is what it looks like when someone doesn't actually want to be your friend, but merely wants to manipulate and use you and has an agenda. I like compare that to Jesus and his actions. Okay. Now you have a better idea of what Jesus says when he talks about friendship. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I, I always, this is, this is the, t- whether it be you or Josh or Reed, I always have a hard time with this question because it's so open-ended. Um, in regards to the idea of like Jesus as, as your friend or whatever, like, is that a thing that you find easy to understand or easy to accept? Or is it uh, a bit more complicated than that for you? Oh, it's uh, it's definitely a complicated thing. Um, I have no trouble. I don't think with uh, separating out the nature of someone like Lancaster Dodd or L. Ron Hubbard uh, apart from Jesus. I mean, that because that, that, that comparison doesn't make sense, given the kind of verses that we just read. Um, however, when I think of the word friend, I think I'm just a human being. When I think of the mm-hmm. word friend, I think of my friends. I think of the people around me that I can hang out with yeah. and uh, go to the movies with or talk about relationships with. Um, you're not technically ever talking to God or Jesus in the same way that you're just hanging out with your friends. It's not like two in the morning, you've had maybe a couple of drinks, you know, and you're, you're finally kind of letting the guard down and you're talking about things that matter. Um, there are prayer sessions that are definitely like that where you, you feel because of the hour, because of the turmoil you're going through that, that you're, you feel wide open in the same way you might with your friends at 2 a.m. after a couple of drinks. But mm-hmm. it's still not the same. The word friend feels like, to me, almost pridefully, should be reserved for those guys that are closest to me and know me best hmm. here on earth. Yeah. Um, and there should be some other version of the word friend yeah. for Jesus. It's like the word, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that word would be. Some other Greek derivation of something. I don't know, yeah. but, um, in, in some ways, I feel like it's not fair for Jesus, of all people, who knows that he's divine, who knows that he is God, and knows that he's going to ascend through the clouds back into heaven 
to use a word like that yeah. for what he wants our relationship to be. It it needs to be something like he just sort of comes clean and says, okay, I said friend before, but I know you don't get it. I'm your master, you're the servant. Yeah. <laughs> that I can understand um, because I'm telling you how you should live your life and I'm accepting it. Yeah. That's the relationship I have. I don't have a relationship that feels like a friend relationship unless yeah. you radically redefine or put a number two under the definition that's also kind of that thing. But yeah. there's never actually, I mean, if you look in the dictionary and there's a one definition and a two definition, the reason there's a two is because that word isn't always used the same way. Well, it's like the word love. I mean, there's all these different ideas yeah. of love, you know. Exactly. And there's also, so maybe um, off of my own statement, maybe I can say that he did mean something else. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, if Jesus appeared to me right now um, in the form that we assume he had, you know, back in Bible times, mm-hmm. um, and sat down to me, I'd still be hard-pressed to call him my friend. Yeah. Because he's still God, and he's still that guy that made the ultimate sacrifice for me. To me, that's somebody who you owe. Yeah. Just naturally. That's somebody who you owe. And I think that's a component of what he expects and what God expects. Mm-hmm. But he's radically shifted down that assumption, that expectation into the realm of friendship that yeah. I can't fathom and understand. So I'm with you. I'm totally with yeah. you. Yeah, it's you know, and as as I so often say on the show, like if there's anybody that has uh, figured this out uh, <laughs> and lives life in such a way that that Jesus is their friend, the way we understand friend. Uh, Please come on the email show. me and uh, <laughs> no, no, no. If I invite people on the show. Gotcha. All right. And I don't want somebody to make me look bad uh, by <laughs> understanding things more, um, which I guess almost everybody does at this point. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, I do try to think in terms of, of, okay, so right now I'm looking at your living room. I'm looking at these two couches. I'm, I'm imagining me sitting. Yes, I have two that- couches, by the way. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, high society. Uh, <laughs> this is a guy who wrote for television. Um, <laughs> They're two very old couches. <laughs> uh, one t- one show bought the green one. Yes. One show bought Maybe. the... T- what color is that, would you say? Grayish? In this light, it looks gray. I'd say it's uh, one is green and one, one is not green. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I'm imagining like me sitting on the green couch, Jesus sitting on the not green couch, and sitting and talking the way I would talk with a friend and that is actually helpful. And, and, and like talking about, you know, stuff that quote unquote matters. Um, like here's what's going on in my life right now. And Jesus like just listening and then, you know, giving advice or something like that. And then be like, all right, this is advice I should definitely take. And then I probably won't. But, um, and in that regard, like thinking of it that way, it's like there's nothing ungodlike about that picture. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. Except it's the fa- except the fact of it. Um, and so I ba- I often need to like picture things in a context that I understand um, and have previously experienced uh, in order to help myself with these things. Um, and then when I think of the fact of Jesus being God, but the fact, but the idea of him sitting there on the couch, listening to what I have to say and feeling like, wow, God is willing to sit on this couch and listen to my stupid, uh, insecurities. Like that's really something like that's honestly like 
it's astonishing me that my that my actual friends listen to that. Do you know what I mean? Like my human friends. So the idea that God would put Himself or that Christ would put Himself in that position, it's like wow. And what and the conclusion I come to is a, a hopeless understatement, but it's basically like wow, what a good friend. Oh, you you know what I mean? Like yeah. think of you know if if you had a friend who definitely had something better to do or something more important to do, but they were choosing instead to hang out and talk with you because you're going through something in your life. That's, that's a, a good, friend. that's a, yes. a friend, not merely a friend. I'd say that's a good friend. That's a good friend. That's a, that's a strong friendship. Can I, I just, just one quick shift by all means. Um, you, just the, the, the picture you painted of you sitting on one couch and Jesus sitting on the other couch opens up this, whole conversation that we can't get into because okay. of time but it'd be interesting to talk about this perhaps uh, either just you and me or on the show the the whole uh relationship of imagination to belief yeah and oh I, boy yes that is, i was thinking about that the other day and i will say this is a, i feel like this is a, a whole episode but by mm-hmm. all means well g- just, give uh, us a taste of it right now i'm curious uh if whenever you picture jesus on my not green couch if you picture him in a robe and sandals and long hair and like yeah, usually it's it's a little it's a little vague within it that. It seems like but that, it's that's a disservice like that. to Jesus and all that he was because Probably. he only dressed that way because everyone else was dressing that yeah. way. But if he was here, he might be wearing you know a you know a threadless t shirt and uh, and yeah, jeans. I, mean, I don't think you'd be. I mean, you, you not this shirt. Yeah, you no, no, no. you reference your own shirt. I don't think you would wear that. No, not with these underarm holes. <laughs> um, he might heal it first and then. But see, now I'm sacrilegious. No, but I think that I think that if he was here, he would. He I have to imagine him if I'm actually going to have that communal imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm his friend thing. He has to be dressed like me. It sounds Fair ridiculous, enough. but yeah, and maybe a modern haircut. That's coming from me. And look at my hair. Yeah, I'd rather not, not. so modern. Um, Andy Gibb at best. <laughs> um, but I, I, that's just sort of a, a taste, I guess, of what that conversation would be. It's like, where do you, what do you do with that image if you're really yeah. needing it? And uh, for me, uh, yeah, need, needing it, but also, I mean, I think it's a, a it's integral, and it yeah. has to be, and it's never really addressed, is it? Yeah, not really. And and I think some people, it, it's a jarring image to me to imagine him in just like a t-shirt and jeans, mm-hmm. but not off-putting. I do think some people would be like, no, Jesus wore robes. I have to assume he would just keep wearing robes, even though he doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be wearing anything. King James. You know, like, that's how it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's worth discussing. And the and I feel like the, the concern, like, the worry um, that I have when talking about this kind of thing is, like, any non-Christians that would listen and just think, like, and think, and it'd be maybe a bit judgmental of how much we're talking about imagination being like, wow, you guys sure are using your imagination a lot. Do you think maybe you're using it so much? In fact, that you've, that you're imagining that there's a God You've created a God for yourself. Yeah. Um, reminds and, me of uh, the old, uh, Woody Allen joke apology, what do you got? Uh, and love and death. <clears throat> when Napoleon knocks on, uh, Diane Keaton's door, pops his head in and says, I thought I heard voices. Or, uh, are you alone? She says, yes. He says, I thought I heard voices. I was praying, but I heard two, she says, "I do. I do both voices." Basically, it was a joke. I totally butchered it, but I don't think case. I picture. I don't think I can imagine it. And no, that's because I screwed it up. So rewind and forget that I ever brought it up. No problem. I was. I was very excited to end I with like Woody, Woody Allen. Allen. There we go. Um, 
But yeah, so we'll, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, hopefully this, you know, episode, once we got to the thematic part was, uh, you know, what's, I can't even think of the word comprehensible. Hmm. Comprehendable. Comprehendable. Cause I know the word incomprehensible. Hmm. See, this is yet another episode. I know. Jot Words. It down. No, thank you. Can I read one thing really fast? Please do. This is just sort of my let's, takeaway. Let's end with this. My spiritual, if you will, takeaway from the master. Please do. Uh, at the end of the movie, we can spoil it, right? End of the movie. Yeah, we've sure. already spoiled it. He, he walks away at the end. Uh, uh, Dodd says, which rhymes with God, by the way. Um, Dodd what? says, Oop. Dodd says, um, you know, either you're with me or you're against me. Mm-hmm. And, and Freddie walks away. That's the end. And so, so it cuts to Freddie's life after that decision, and he's having sex with a woman, which is what he always wants to do anyway. Yeah. Uh, but the difference is now he's asking his partner um, questions that he was himself asked in yeah. that first processing scene. And it's hard to tell from the tone of the scene if he's making fun of that experience or if this is now just the way he thinks. There's a little bit of both. A little bit of both. But my takeaway from that in terms of spiritual life and my own life is this, and I'll read it because I wrote it and I always write better than I speak. Uh, Freddie's like a lot of people, including me, who in the end reject orthodoxy for integration. We go back to living our regular lives while repeating maxim and, maxims and mantras as a kind of comfort or reminder. And that's kind of me a lot mm-hmm. of the time. It's like I know the right things to say. I know the things that might might help me in this moment. I'm still going to do this moment again and again in my life because I'm weak. But I, you know, I know what to say. I'm not actually in the cause anymore, but I know the cause and I can apply it when I need it. And I feel like that's cheap grace, it's cheap religion, it's cheap Jesus, it's cheap all that. But that's kind of the way I live most of the time, just by way of confession, I feel like. Yeah, I think I probably do as well. Like I'll, I'll employ it if I need to feel better about myself or, or like, um, justify a certain decision or, or a certain outlook mm-hmm. but if it means like it's like well surely i can't live my whole life like that i mean come on i got places yeah. to be right um but yeah but that's what we're called to do and what we're expected to do but okay, you know what here's the thing i was about to bring up grace and that is a good thing but in doing so i over as i think modern christians do I think I uh, I undersold the idea of there of there being an expectation, or at least an idea of behavior. You know, it's the of balance. Like, of yeah, the two. It has to be both. Yeah, like there is a way we should live, and it's one of selflessness. You know, of putting other people above ourselves um, and seeking holiness, and that is an expectation. That is a thing that God wants from us. But what's fascinating to me, and indeed what is a, a, a difficult idea, is that though God expects it from us, he also knows full well that we're going to fail, and there is always forgiveness there, always. And so, like, that's crazy to me, that idea. Oh, yeah. Um, Undeserved. But, yeah, yeah. And just... Uh, that God... You would think that like God's like, all right, well, look, I know they're going to fail anyway, so I'm going to take the expectation away. Or, like, you know, well, they're just going to keep failing. So, you know what? My grace only lasts so long. Like, they need to start fulfilling my expectation. But no, it's the expectation is always there, even though we're going to fail. And the reconciliation will always be there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's just uh it's fascinating and hopefully it's encouraging to some um it's a it as like even though that is a core part of our belief and often i think core beliefs have a a, a simple quality to them um or at least a a a general quality to them this one seems simple but it's very difficult to wrap your mind around um I haven't wrapped my mind completely around it intellectually. Um, thankfully, my emotions come into play, and I and all I and all I'm left with is just tremendous thankfulness. Right. Um, but uh, all right, I think we will leave it there. Um, we are, yeah, about a full hour longer than I wanted. No, I can always predict the future whenever you say the words. I know we're going to keep it short this time. No, no, no. I never say we're going to. I say I'd like to. Try. Um, but no, this episode wound up being about as long as, as most of them. But uh, but that's all right, because in talking about the master, I feel like, you know, we don't want to give it, again, this is three hours, uh, three years in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I didn't want to give it a short shrift. But anyway, you, so. You could probably play the entire episode on your way home. It'll take that long. I know. Maybe someone wants to go to lunch with me, uh, go to dinner with me or something like that. I don't know. Oh. But um, anyway. All right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, listeners, of course, you can find me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, you're on. Are you on Twitter? I think. I don't remember. Okay. So can people find your work anywhere or, or are I you anywhere so. online? Probably if they dug around enough. It's there. That's the spirit. Anyway, <laughs> really embracing this thing. I appreciate it. Uh, Social what? Social media? I don't know. Fair enough. Uh, okay, so... Uh, Anti-social yeah, you media. Can, and if you have any uh, questions, you can email me at tyler at morethanonelesson.com. If you have any questions for Robert, uh, email me, because he doesn't have an official email yet. <laughs> email me, and I'll forward them on to him. Great time so, to be alive. What was that? Nothing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, Robert, thanks for, for being here. You got it. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.